If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 34? Ezekiel chapter 34. We're going to read the end of chapter 34 and talk a little bit about the whole chapter. Ezekiel chapter 34, beginning in verse 23. This is the Lord speaking through his prophet Ezekiel. And he says, And I will set up over them one shepherd. Does that sound familiar? And I will set up up for them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will make with them a covenant of peace and banish wild beasts from the land so that they may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And I will make them and the places all around my hill a blessing. And I will send down the showers in their season. They shall be showers of blessing. And the trees of the field shall yield their fruit and the earth shall yield its increase. And they shall be secure in their land. And they shall know that I am the Lord when I break the bars of their yoke and deliver them from the hand of those who enslave them. They shall no more be a prey to the nations, nor shall the beasts of the land devour them. They shall dwell securely, and none shall make them afraid. Well, that's a verse worth saving. And I will provide for them renowned plantations so that they shall be no more be so that they shall no more be consumed with hunger in the land and no longer suffer the reproach of the nations and they shall know that I am the Lord their God with them and that they the house of Israel are my people declares the Lord God and you are my sheep human sheep of my pasture and I am your God declares the Lord God can we pray together this morning Heavenly Father, I have one aim this morning. I want my congregation to see how good Jesus is. I want them to see how good Jesus is. And so, Father, I pray through the work of the Spirit, you would give me great ability that I don't have, great power that is not natural to me, great clarity that is not in my sermon already to be able to declare to them the goodness of Jesus, that their spirits may be lifted, that their voices might praise you, that they might be sustained in the darkness of their lives, that they might be encouraged in the despair of the moment, that they might be, their flame and affection for you might be fanned up and stirred great passion in them for the name and the glory of Jesus. Father, thank you. Thank you for Jesus. And we ask these things in his name. Amen. You may be seated. In 1957, Harvard psychologist Dr. Kurt Richter issued a study, and he was studying something that may seem difficult to study. He was studying hope. Particularly, he was studying the relationship between hope and perseverance. And so what he wanted his people, what he wanted to be able to discover is, was there actually a relationship between hope and perseverance the way that so many of us assume that there is? And so he got a, uh, a school of rats, and he placed them in jars of water that were half-filled. And he timed them. And what he recognized is that after about 15 minutes of treading the water, the rats would get into distress and eventually drown. It was always right around that 15-minute mark. 
And so to be able to see if hope would make any difference, or if a, a rat can even hope at all, he put another school of rats into the jars of water. And sure enough, at about the 15-minute mark, the rats began to show signs of being in distress and apparently were about to drown when he retrieved them. And he retrieved them and he, he dried them off and he allowed them to come and to be warmed up and to recuperate. And after a few minutes of being able to recuperate and getting themselves recollected, he submerged the rats again and he put them back into the water. Now, how long do you think they made it the second time? Well, it wasn't 15 minutes, and it wasn't 30 minutes, and it wasn't 60 minutes that the rats that he had retrieved from the water and reinstalled in the water made it 60 hours of treading water. And so he was able to say, to surmise from this study, that if we are able to have hope, then we can endure what we thought we couldn't endure. That we can make it when we thought we couldn't make it. But what we can begin to recognize is that if over time you begin to realize that the hope that you have isn't hope at all, there is nothing more hopeless than that. That though we may recognize that hope enables us to persevere, there is nothing more hopeless than the proof of false hope is there. Many of you, you lived and you thought, you know, if I, if I had kids, if I had kids, my, my life would feel more complete. If I had kids, maybe my marriage would be happier. If I, if I had kids, maybe I would be appreciated. And when you had kids, what ended up happening? Your life got more difficult. Your life got more challenging. Your marriage got more challenging. And at least to despair because you thought this was my hope and it proved to be no hope at all. Perhaps you are looking to feel some sense of value and worth as a per person. And so you think, if I get the degree, if I just graduate, or if I, if I get another degree, or if I, if I am recognized by my colleagues, if I get the promotion, if I get the job that I'm looking for, if I get the salary that I want, and now your wall is wallpapered in certificates, and you still feel like an imposter in every room that you walk in. That your hope felt like no hope ended up being no hope at all. And what happens when your hope is proved to be false is you end up totally disabled from being able to persevere at all. And you wonder, what is the purpose of all this? You, you end up where Solomon ends up in Ecclesiastes, where it becomes that life is just chasing after the wind, apparently meaningless. Well, this is really applicable to where the people of God are in Ezekiel. Through Jeremiah and Isaiah, through the minor prophets, God has been telling them, you're persevering, but you're persevering in false hope. You keep trusting all the other gods. You keep trusting in the sword. You keep trusting in, uh, in the alliances that you have made with pagan countries. Turn back, turn back, place your hope only in me. Only I am the real substance of hope. Only I am the real source of a hope that can sustain you. And yet the people of God kept turning to all the means of the world to sustain them in hope. They kept turning to having more kids. And they kept turning to making more money. And they kept turning to having more opportunities. And time and again... They begin to realize that their hope is false. In fact, what we have in Ezekiel is God being willing to prove to his people through suffering that the hopes that they had were false hopes altogether. Well, the Lord will allow us to experience the same suffering, won't he? He'll prove to us that our hopes are false because false hope is no hope at all. And if the Lord allows us to endure in false hope, that is not particularly loving, is it? 
And so in Ezekiel chapter 10, we have this dramatic scene in which the presence of God vacates the temple. The, the very source of provision that made them distinct among all the people has withdrawn from his people. And as a result, in Ezekiel chapter 24, the fires of siege are lit by Nebuchadnezzar around the walls of Jerusalem so that the city will be utterly sacked and devastated. And so here in Ezekiel 34... In the rubble of life, in the rubble of Babylon, Ezekiel has a vision from the Lord to show them one more time the substance of real hope. And this morning, if you're going to persevere and you're going to make it, if your children are going to persevere through the age in which we live, what you must have is the substance of real hope. So what is the substance? First of all, it's that our shepherd has come. Our shepherd has come. There was... At the height of political turmoil a few years ago, there was an interview with a woman from Alabama because, of course, she was from Alabama. And in the interview, she says something along the lines of, you know, I don't listen to any of the news. I only listen to what God says. Amen so far, right? Like, we're, we're, we're tracking with her. I don't believe what politicians say. I only believe what God says. Amen so far, right? Like, I'm, I'm with her. And then she goes on to allude to Matthew 24 and 25 in the Olivet Discourse. And she says, I believe that God is separating the goats from the sheep right now. I believe that the Lord is shepherding. Now, I think that's probably an, an, an over-realization of the translation of the passage. But okay, I, I can track with you so far. But the reporter stops for a second and he says, okay, ma'am, well, well, which are you? Are you the goat or are you the sheep? You've probably seen the clip. He says, well, I'm no sheep, so I guess I'm a goat. Because I'm fighting against everything. Now, it's enough to say that it's sad how often we know our politics better than we know our Bibles, isn't it? But the point is well made that being called a sheep, as we frequently are in the scripture, is not the most flattering of comparisons. Sheep are dumb creatures, okay? Sheep are, are dumb creatures, and sheep are not just dumb creatures, sheep are helpless creatures. A sheep has no defense mechanism. I mean, you can't buy a wolf to death, right? I mean, like, what, what's a sheep going to do? A sheep is totally dependent upon a shepherd to feed it. A sheep is totally dependent upon a shepherd to protect it. A, a sheep is totally dependent upon a, sheep to, uh, upon a shepherd to be able to provide for it all the things that it needs. But the point in the Bible is well made. That to be a sheep that has a good shepherd is a pretty good life. That if I have a good shepherd that keeps me safe, and I have a, a good shepherd that keeps me fed, and I have a, a good shepherd that provides for me all that I have to provide, it's kind of like a child. You just live in the pasture. You lay down. You live the good life. You have nothing to worry about. The shepherd takes care of it all. And the point that Ezekiel is making is that the Lord has a shepherd for his people, and he is good. The Lord has a shepherd for his people, and he is good. Now, this stands in contrast to the shepherds that they have. If you go to the beginning of Ezekiel chapter 34, the first nine verses is really Ezekiel taking to task the shepherds of Israel. Now, shepherd was a term that was used in antiquity to refer to any number of leaders, particularly the king, but it could refer to civil leaders and religious leaders alike. And so in Ezekiel 34, there at the beginning, what I think he has in mind is the royal line, of course. I think he has in mind the priesthood. I think he has in mind all of the false prophets. And so what Ezekiel says is that you have a group of shepherds that have not been good to you. In fact, rather than feeding the sheep, they have been feeding on the sheep. Rather than protecting the sheep, they have been scattering the sheep. 
So the, the shepherd that you have is not, the shepherds that you have have not been protecting. They've not allowed you to rest. They have not allowed you to enjoy all that I intend for you to enjoy. And so there's a refrain that comes up throughout Ezekiel chapter 34 where the Lord says, I myself am going to come then. I myself am going to be your shepherd. I myself am going to bring my and feed my sheep. I myself am going to provide for my sheep. I myself am going to live among them and defend them and, and, and provide for them everything that they need. So there's a tension that if you don't have that context, you really can't see when you come to the end when he's beginning to talk about the new covenant. He comes there in verse 23 and he says, so I will set up over them one shepherd. Now remember, this is from, uh, Jesus re references this in John chapter 10. But who's the shepherd going to be? He said, it's my servant, David. Now that's interesting, because throughout Ezekiel chapter 34, God has said over and over and over again, I'm going to come, I'm going to be your shepherd. And then he gets to verse 23 and he says, now David's going to come and David's going to be your shepherd. And you kind of left to, and I think you're meant to, to say, what in the world? Lord, like David was good, but we'd prefer you. <laughs> you told us you were going to come and be our shepherd. You told us you were going to be the one. That you were going to displace all the false prophets, and you were going to displace all the priesthood, and you were going to displace the, the bad kings. That you were going to come under one shepherd and unite the people. Like, I thought it was going to be you, but now you're saying it's David, but the tension gets thicker yet. See, he talks about David, but... And that brings into our mind that promise that God made to David, doesn't it? That, that on your throne, I'm gonna, there's going to be a, a king from your line forever. They're going to reign over my people. They're going to reign over the nations. That I'm going to allow them to experience the, the fullness of my kingdom in a way that you haven't even been able to experience. You're going to experience the fullness of my presence in a way that you haven't even experienced. But there's a tension that happens here after the, the fires of siege have been lit around the walls of Jerusalem in, that, in the early days when uh, Nebuchadnezzar had conquered, had conquered the people of God. He had set up a king from the line of David. Now he was, he was a, a puppet king, but his name was Zedekiah. And Zedekiah, without authorization from the Lord and without the support of the Lord, decides that he's going to lead a revolt ten years after he's been made the puppet king by Nebuchadnezzar. And when he leads this revolt, it goes about as well as you would expect a little pesky ant to come up against a wildebeest, right? Like, like it, it, goes about that, it goes about that well. And so uh, Nebuchadnezzar brings Zedekiah, and he brings every one of Zedekiah's son, the entire royal line, and he brings him before him. And he puts Zedekiah there front and center. And while Zedekiah watches on, you can read about this in Jeremiah 51, I believe. If you, while Jeremiah is watching on, he has, or while Zedekiah is watching on, he has every single one of Zedekiah's sons executed right in front of him. And after all of his sons have been executed, God takes, or Nebuchadnezzar takes Zedekiah and he plucks his eyeballs out. And he doesn't put him to death. He instead reserves for him a long life. So that for the rest of his life, Zedekiah will know that the last thing that he ever witnessed was the end of the line of David. The death to the promise that God had made to his king. And so the promise is apparently in peril. So there's a tension here when we come to verse 23 where it looks like God's promise has not been kept. God says that he's going to come. Now God says he's not going to come. He says David's going to come. But how is David going to come when all of the sons of David have been put to death? And if you don't understand this tension, you can't soak in every single syllable that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10 when he says, I am 
the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. What is he saying? What is he saying? When he says, I am the shepherd, he's saying, I am this shepherd. The shepherd David. Who was David? Where did God find David? God found David out in the shepherd's field. And so he's bringing into their mind. God is keeping his promise. God is going to uphold what he said to David, but not in the way that you expect. He's going to uphold it through me. A man born in Nazareth from, or born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, is going to come and be your messianic king. That's not all he says, right? Not only is he the son of David, he says, I am. I am. Does that bring into your mind Exodus chapter 3? Does that bring into your mind when the burning bush rolls up on Moses one day and he tells Moses he's going to deliver his people and he's going to bring them out of slavery? And Moses blown away says, who in the world am I going to tell you sent me? He says, tell them I am sent you because I am that I am. That it brings into the mind that he's not just the son of David. That this is God himself. That the tension is fully resolved in Christ. How is it going to be God but David? Because it is going to be the God's son. The man who is with God and the man who was God. Who has now come as the son of David to be the good shepherd among his people. That the Lord is going to keep his promises. And he's going to keep them through Jesus. Through the good shepherd who is going to lay down his life for the sheep. You see, what Jesus is showing us in John chapter 10 is that he is the verification of the hope that we have in God. That no hope in God is ever proven to be false. How do we know? How do we know? Because Jesus is the proof. Jesus is the proof. That he is the proof that God keeps every single promise. He is the proof. David's promise appeared to be in peril, didn't it? Very often the promises to us appear to be in peril. How many times have you heard that God works all things together for the good of those who love him? Who are called according to his purpose. How many times have you heard that? Probably so many that you're tempted to let your eyes roll. As a matter of fact, sometimes you get into a place and you're suffering. Like you're suffering for real. Like you have cancer. Your, your, your husband has abandoned you. You lost your job. You've lost a child. You... And somebody comes to you, and you almost don't want them to say Romans 8.28 to you, because right now, right now, it just doesn't feel like that's true. Oh, it wouldn't have felt like David's promise was going to be kept either, brothers and sisters. But Jesus is the proof that what we have is more than a series of myths that have been passed down from one generation to the next. What we have in Jesus is the good shepherd who has come as God himself, the son of David, the son of God, to prove to us that the shepherd is going to feed his people. The shepherd is going to provide for his people. The shepherd is going to defend his people. Which means that he's not just the proof that God keeps his promises, he's the proof that we're safe. He's the proof that we're safe. See, the thing about shepherds is the shepherd lived a dangerous life. He might lose his life in defending the sheep. He might lose his life in fighting off whatever wild animal might come. He might lose his life chasing a sheep and, and stumbling and falling in some particular way. He might lose his life because he's, he's in such a remote area of the land. But you know what shepherds didn't do? Shepherds didn't voluntarily lay down their life for the sheep. But the good shepherd does. The good shepherd does. 
The good shepherd didn't call down the angels from heaven to rescue him from the cross. The, the good shepherd didn't save his life that he, might, that he might cost you your life. The good shepherd says, of my own will, of my own accord, by my own decision, I lay down my life for you that you might know that I will defend you against every predator. I will defend you against every enemy. I will defend you even against hell itself because I will go into the grave and I will rise victorious to prove that the sheep in my pasture are safe. So brothers and sisters, what do we do? We lie down in the pasture. Psalm 23. He is the shepherd who walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death and he makes us lie down in green pastures. What do we get to do? We get to say, the Lord will provide. He is my hope. Jesus has proven it. Why is the substance of our hope? Our shepherd has come. And our peace, our peace is secure. Our peace is secure. One of the verses that I've heard quoted most often over the course of my life, and rightfully so, is John 10.10. In fact, that was the first theme verse of the first youth camp that I ever went to back in 1997. And I don't know that we've ever really stopped often enough, though, to think about what the context of of that particular verse really is, right? He says, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I came, they may have life and have it abundantly. Now, we ought to stop and ask ourselves for a second, who is the thief? Well, if you listen to what I read earlier, he tells you who the thief is. The thief that he is referring to are all of the bad shepherds of Israel. He's referring to the false prophets. He's referring to the, to the priesthood who sees the people as an opportunity for prey. He, he's referring to the, the kings who didn't care to reign over the people well or provide for them a, a benevolent rule that glorifies God, that only cared about how much gold they had and how many victories they notched. It says, so the thief, all of the other leaders, they come and they look like shepherds and they pretend like to be shepherds, but they're really wolves. And when you have wolves dressed up as shepherds, then what does that create? It creates insecurity among the flock, doesn't it? It creates insecurity because now I can't rest. Is that a shepherd that's going to protect me or is that a wolf that's going to eat me? That's That's an important question to recognize. I've experienced the insecurity of this myself. The man that I probably consider to be my foremost mentor in the ministry, I realized in the last days of his life, was actually guilty of egregious predatory behavior. And as I wrestled with that reality, I remember thinking, well, Lord, if I'm wrong about him, how do I know I'm not wrong about everything? If, if I'm wrong about who he was, and, and, and I would have let my children stay with him without any hesitation, like, how can I know That's the world that we live in, isn't it? That's the world that you and I live in. And what Jesus is saying in John 10.10 is, I am not like those shepherds. I am not like the ones that you can't trust. I am not like the ones that want to prey upon you and feed upon you. I am not like the ones that come to steal from you. I am not like the ones that want to scatter the sheep. I am a good shepherd that comes now that you might have an abundant life. And actually what I think what we have there in verses 25 through 29, is an unpacking of what it means to have an abundant life. That what we have in verses 25 through 29 is an unpacking of what life is going to be like in the kingdom of God when Christ returns and the kingdom is consummated. What life is going to be like when we enjoy the fullness of the new covenant. That what we're going to find out is that our peace is comprehensive. 
or peace is comprehensive. Ezekiel would have been a young man when Jeremiah was preaching. And so Jeremiah, no doubt, he would have had audience with Ezekiel. Ezekiel was raised to be a preacher, remember? And so was Jeremiah. They would have known similar circles. They would have had some relational connections. And no doubt, no doubt, there where Ezekiel was raised, Jeremiah would have been preaching. And what was part of Jeremiah's message? Part of Jeremiah's message, Jeremiah 31, you'll remember, it's that there is a new covenant. There is a new covenant that makes the old covenant obsolete. There is a new covenant in which our, our hearts are going to be transformed and our minds are going to be transformed. And we're going to be God's people and God's going to be our God. And, and we're going to be united with him in a way that, that will never be broken. And so you can imagine Jer- Ezekiel there as a man of faith, part of the remnant, living in the midst of an unfaithful generation, meditating upon the words of Jeremiah 31. And I think, I think that's exactly what we get here in 25 through 29, what does he say? That here there is a covenant of peace. This is his language of the new covenant. Only Jeremiah explicitly uses the language new covenant, but all of the prophets refer to it in one way or the other. And the way that Ezekiel refers to it is by calling it a covenant of peace. And this word peace is a word, a Hebrew word that you've probably heard before. Shalom. That I'm going to, and not that, that God is going to bring about through the shepherd, a time of shalom, of abiding shalom. Now, shalom, it means more than just the absence of conflict. That, that's, that, that's part of it, but that's not the fullness of what it means. That what shalom is talking about is the totality of well-being, that you are well in the inner person and you are well in the outer person. You're well in your circumstances, that, that you are literally the tree planted by streams of water and the tree that always knows you, you are the branch always connected to the vine that knows it's always going to have everything that it needs to live a vital life, a vibrant life, a flourishing. So, so when it's talking about shalom, it's talking about, it, we literally could say that it's going to be a covenant of optimum human flourishing. It's going to be a a covenant of the totality, comprehensive peace. He uses some word pictures to help us to understand how comprehensive this peace is really going to be. First of all, he's saying that we will be safe. We will be safe. He says, I will banish wild beasts. Now, we don't often think so much about wild beasts coming and devouring us. We have zoos and we have, you know, we have guns. We, we, have, we have a lot of resources. We, we have mothballs, like we have, we have all the things, right, like to, to be able to, to keep the wild beasts away from us. But in this time, especially for a shepherd in an agrarian society, you spent a lot of time out, outdoors and they had not been overhunted and there were a lot of beasts and, and there, were, there were lions and bears and snakes and, and there were all these things in places that they are, aren't even, don't even exist now. And it was a real and present threat. And so the wild beasts were representative of the chaos of the creation, of, of the curse that had come upon the land that, that there, you live, walk out literally every day I don't know if I'm going to be blown away by a typhoon, if I'm going to be bitten by a snake. No anti-venom, remember that. I don't know if I'm going to be attacked by a bear. Like I, I don't know if, if there's going to be some natural phenomenon that's going to wipe me off the earth. And so there was this sense of, of insecurity that's even more insecure than we know. And so what he's saying is I'm going to bring those, un- those are all going to be brought under control. That, there are these, that the wild creation is going to be tamed in the new creation. We will be safe. Not only does he say that we will be safe, he says that we will be prosperous. He says, and I will make them places all around my hill a blessing. I will send down showers in their season, and they shall be what? Showers 
of blessing. The trees of the field shall yield their fruit, and the earth shall yield its increase, and they shall be secure in the land, and they shall know that I am the Lord when I break the bars of their yoke and deliver them in the hand of those who enslaved them. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, right right now, you don't know if you're going to have a famine or not. You don't know if you're going to have a drought or not. You don't don't know if you're going to have too much water or not. You don't know if the wind is going to blow over and break every plant that you have. You you don't know if a predator is going to come into your flock and pick them off. You don't know. But what I can tell you is you can hope in the future because a time is coming in which you will be utterly prosperous. Without doubt, you will not just have enough. You will have excess. You will have more than you want, more than you need, and you will rest there in the environment of what God has made, and you will experience the bounty of the land, and you will bring glory to his name because you will experience exactly what he intends for you to experience. So, But not only will you be safe, and not only will you be prosperous, but you will be free. You will be free. He says in verse 28, no more be a prey. I love the word prey. It's so vivid, isn't it? You will know, they shall no more be a prey to the nations, nor shall the beasts of the land devour them. They shall dwell security, securely, and none of them afraid. And I will provide for them renowned plantations, so that they shall no more be consumed with hunger in the land, and no longer suffer the reproach of nations. You, when you were a tiny little nation like Israel, you were always worried about Assyria. You were always worried about Babylon. You were always worried about Egypt. Who's going to come take my land this time? Who's going to try to take our prosperity this time? Who's going to try to invade us now? There was never this sense of, well, we have a, a nuclear arsenal that will blow them off the face of the earth. But he's saying there's a time coming in which the Second Amendment will be null and void. There is a time coming in which armies will only be used for parades. There is a time coming in which there will be no threat against my people. We think we know freedom in America. Man, we don't know anything compared to what life is going to be like in the new heavens and the new earth when there is literally no threat against us whatsoever. And so what the point is, is that in the new covenant, in this covenant of shalom, this covenant of peace, is there is not one part of our lives, one part of our existence, our relationship with one another, our relationship with creation, our relationship with other nations that will go untouched and untransformed by the person of Christ. That he will transform it and he will transform it in totality. That peace will become the normal condition of everyday Life. Now, who are we? Who are we? We are the people that live like that's already true, y'all. That's who we are. Do you know why we live that way? Because on the cross, the good shepherd said, it is finished. That it has been accomplished. That the new kingdom has been inaugurated. And though we today live in that space, the new kingdom inaugurated in the first coming of Christ, the new kingdom consummated in the return of Christ, we live in the meantime declaring to the world, it is finished. You can already live at peace. You can already live free. You can already trust in the provision that Christ has made because it only gets better from here. That is, our peace is comprehensive, and because it has already been accomplished, our peace is now irrevocable. Over and again, what is the refrain coming up throughout this this description of what life is going to be like in the covenant of peace? He says in verse 25, they will dwell securely. Verse 
27, he says, they shall be secure in their land. Verse 28, he says, they shall dwell securely. He says, they're going to banish. That means permanent exile the wild beasts. Verse 28, he says, they shall no more be prey. That sounds permanent to me. None shall make them afraid. That they shall no more be consumed with hunger. They will no longer suffer the reproach. That what is coming about is an age of peace that is irrevocable and it is already been accomplished by the good shepherd for his people now now that is the substance of hope how does jesus describe this in john chapter 10 jesus says this he says my sheep hear my voice and i know them and they follow me i give them eternal life that's what he's accomplished and they will never perish it's irrevocable never 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 and no one will what Snatch them out of my hand. Jesus' grip on us is the substance of our hope in him. Every other hope on the face of the earth says this, you better cling to me. You better cling to me. You better cling to the hope of that job. You better cling to the hope of your, of your nest egg. You better cling to the hope of your children that they're going to turn out all right. You better cling to the hope that, that you've got good health and that you've exercised. You better, you better cling to the hope of clean living and clean eating. You better cling to all the hope. Only Christianity says your hope clings to you, man. Your hope clings to you. You aren't clinging to Jesus. Jesus is clinging to you. Sometimes, when my peace doesn't feel very peaceful. You ever, you ever been there? When you know you have peace accomplished in Christ, but your peace just doesn't feel very peaceful. When all of the voices and all of the threats come and overwhelm your sense of reason so that your, your sense of feeling is, is anxiety, so that your sense of feeling is being overwhelmed, so that your sense of feeling is, is trembling. You know what I've, I've decided to start doing? That what I'm going to do is I'm going to lay myself flat. I've done this. I, y'all, y'all already think I'm crazy, so I can live with it. I'm going to lay myself flat in the office floor. Sometimes laying on my bed when I can't sleep at night. And I envision myself laying in the hand of Jesus. I env- it's a physical reminder of actual reality. Do you know what's realer than your cancer? That you are forever in the grip of Jesus. You know what's realer than your divorce? That you are forever in the grip of Jesus. You know what's realer than the bills coming due? That you are forever in the grip of Jesus. You know what's realer than all of the criticisms that you've received as a parent or as a man or as an employee? That you are in the grip of Jesus. And so I want to lay myself down in the hand of Christ to remember what is actual reality. That the substance of my hope in Christ is his grip on me. Oh, lay down in the pastures of our shepherd church. Lay down in the pastures of the Good Shepherd Church because there you are protected and there you are provided for. Our peace is secure and our knowledge is personal. One of the reproaches against the charges against the shepherds of Israel is that they don't care that they've scattered the sheep. That they're supposed to hold them all together, but instead they are the very means by which the sheep are being scattered. And so throughout, if you read, it's not just in in Ezekiel 34, but you'll find it in Ezekiel 34. God will often say to the shepherds of Ezekiel, they strayed, but you didn't go after them. My my sheep were straying, but you didn't care. My sheep were straying, but you didn't pursue them. My sheep were straying, but you didn't seek them. Does that remind you of a story that Jesus told? 
See, Ezekiel 34 provides the context for Luke chapter 15. Jesus says that whenever there is a good shepherd, if he has a hundred sheep, if one of those sheep run away from the flock, what will the good shepherd do? He'll leave the flock behind and he'll run after them at great expense to himself and great personal cost and at the potential of, of incurring danger and harm to himself, that he'll inconvenience himself, that he might run after the sheep and pursue the sheep to bring them back. Now, what does that tell us? I think we have this vision very often of God, that God looks down on us like an ant bed that we've stepped in. That he looks down and there's just a bunch of faceless ants scurrying about without any, po- that all we are is, just in, are, are is just a bunch of insects in God's ant bed. No, 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 friends. We are sheep in his flock and he knows us. He knows us by name. He knows us by face. He recognizes when one of us falls away. He knows it when one of us have strayed. How does he know it? Because he came to us. He dwells among us. He is the shepherd that cares about what happens to his sheep. And the best news yet is not only does God know us, but if we are God's, we can know him too. That we know the real him. When we know the real him, listen to what he says. He says, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God. It's personal, isn't it? Matter of fact, this phrase, they shall know that I am the Lord their God, comes up in Ezekiel 50 times. It's a major theme in the book of Ezekiel. That what, what God is wanting is not just that he knows his people, he's always known his people. What he's envisioning in the, in the new covenant, what he's envisioning in the age of Christ is a time in which his people will all know him. They will recognize his voice. They will see his provision. They will rejoice in his presence. They will know him fully and truly. Now, this is not talking about intellectual knowledge alone. That's good, but it's the starting point. It's not the finish line. James chapter 2 says that the demons know that Jesus is the son of God and they tremble. They know it intellectually. What it's talking about is experiential relational knowledge. What it's talking about is something that is, you know, it's, it's one thing that you know honey is sweet. It's another thing to taste the sweetness of honey, isn't it? It's one thing to know that the fire is hot. It's another thing to thaw out your feet by the warmth of the fire. It's one thing to know that your dad will always defend you. It's another thing to watch your dad step in front of you and the th- between you and the threat. It's one thing to know that your wife loves you and is trustworthy. It's another thing to watch her nurture and care for you in the lowest, most despicable, sinful moment of your life. There's a difference between knowing something intellectually and knowing something experientially. And what Jesus says about his, what God says about his sheep is the same thing that Jesus declares about his flock is that they will not just know about me, they will know me. They will know that I am the good shepherd. They will have experienced my provision. They will have experienced my protection. They will know that I care about. This is what Jesus says, right? My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. Now, if you and I were to go to any random sheep farm today, and we were to go out and we were to cry out, the sheep would pay us no mind. In fact, the sheep might run away from us because they don't know if we're really a threat or not. But what happens when their shepherd comes out? The shepherd that fed them every day. 
The shepherd that's protected them every day. The shepherd that's gotten them out of danger. The shepherd that they've come to depend upon. Well, the shepherd, he hardly has to say a word. The sheep just come running. This is the picture of the church. How do you know if you know Jesus? How do you know if you're in the flock? Do you hear his voice? Do you hear his voice? That is, when he comes, are you encouraged by the fact that he's with you? Do you want to be right and bring glory to his name? Do you want to obey him in all the things that he's commanded you? Not do you hear some revelatory verse where the sky splits, but when you hear the words of the Bible, do they resonate in your, soul, in your soul and resound throughout your life so that you want to hear the word preached and you want to, diver, to digest what God has said because God has a word for you. Can I ask you something? Do you hear his voice? Do you hear his voice? Have you ever heard his voice? Maybe all of your life you've never heard his voice, but this morning, this morning, what I'm saying is ringing true to you that you need the substantial hope of a good shepherd that has come in pursuit and laid his dive down for the, this morning, come to Christ. If you hear his voice, you're one of his sheep, come to Christ. We can know the real hymn and then enjoy the full hymn. I love what he says there in verse 31. He says, you are sheep, my sheep, human sheep of my pasture. Now, what is the significance of a pasture to sheep? Well, y'all, that's home, isn't it? That's home. And he's talking to a group of exiles that aren't living at home. He's talking to a group of exiles that are living in a strange land there in Babylon. Their home has been utterly destroyed. You know what he's telling them? That in the covenant of peace, in the new covenant, you're not just going to go back to an earthly dwelling there in the Middle East. That there is a greater dwelling place. There is a greater home for the people of God. And that is that it is with God himself that you will take refuge under the shadow of his wings. That he will be to you a strong tower and refuge. Over the last ten years, I guess every single time the text has allowed it, I've told you that this is not your home. And this is not what you're living for. And my goodness, we need a reminder of that. But what I don't know that I've told you often enough is that even though this isn't your home, you have a home. In fact, Christians are the only people that have a real home. Christians are the only people that have a permanent dwelling. How do we know? It is finished. The Son of God was crucified and raised and he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. You know where home is? I know a lot of you haven't experienced this yet because this is not your home. Home is the place where you're really known. Home is the place where you're really safe. Home is the place where you're really happy. Home is the place where you're disarmed and off your guard. Home is the place where you eat meals with family. Home is the place where you celebrate all of life's milestones. Home is the place that you rejoice day in and day out in the goodness of God. And brothers and sisters, we have a home in God that we are going to fully enjoy for all of eternity because Christ, the good shepherd, has come. So what do we do? Lay down in the pastures of the Lord. Rest in the grip of the Lord. Because your hope is not based on myth. Your host hope is founded 
upon substance. Let's pray together. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, and what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.